Well, recently, and this might surprise you, but I was reading an article about the massive popularity of singer-songwriter Taylor Swift. She often writes out of her life experiences, including her relationships that have gone bad. If you are a young man here today in your 30s and you are single, I would advise you not to go out with Taylor Swift. You may be the subject of a song someday. I was also recently in a place, and it's funny, when I I go around to places and I hear music that's playing, I hear a lot of music back from when I was younger, uh, and this was when I was really young, but uh, I heard a song going back into the rock and roll archives, if you will, all the way from 1980, a group by the name of the Jay Giles Band wrote a simple song called Love Stinks, so... (laughs) So maybe Taylor wants to take a page out of the Jay Giles band. She'll do a remake or something like that. I have to say that I disagree with their conclusions, but I do acknowledge the title of our message today, and that is The High Cost of Love. Love can be very costly, and it will, of course, course cost us something. Uh, this will be seen today in our scripture passage in a disciple's love for Jesus, and a disciple is merely a learner and follower of Jesus. We've elevated it to super-Christian, but in the Bible, actually in the New Testament, the term disciple is used over 250 times. The term Christian, which was really a derogatory put-down term back in the day, is probably only used about two or three times. And so, and so this, we're going to see this disciple's love for Jesus and Jesus' love for her. A costly love that is demonstrated practically, actually by her and by Jesus. There's an old expression, something is only worth what people are willing to pay for it. And today we are going to be directly confronted with the value of Jesus. Specifically, what is the value of Jesus to you and what is the value of Jesus to me? Here as we come into Matthew chapter 26, we turn a corner, and it is a big corner that we are now going to turn after over three years of ministry and miracles and teaching. Jesus of Nazareth is in Jerusalem. He's been there before, but this time he is there uh, to die on the cross. And we've seen, if you've been with us in this this last week of Jesus' life, we've seen the triumphal entry. Jesus came into town on a donkey. Some of us grew up in in an environment where we referred to that as Palm Sunday, same thing. We've seen his debates with the religious leaders in the temple. And uh, he was de- they were debating all different kinds of stuff. By the way, if you weren't here, uh, Jesus did the, you know, the, the smackdown on them. He crushed them. They went home with their tails between their legs. And we've also seen in the last two chapters Jesus teaching his apostles on what we call the end times or, or the end of the world as we know it. Now we move into what everything has been leading up to. The cross. So you could say that Matthew, after 25 chapters of introduction, is finally going to get to his message. And sometimes you guys think I have long introductions. And so he's going to talk about what we call the passion. Now, typically, when we think of passion, we think of, of, of love or somebody's very passionate about something. But when the scripture talks about the passion, we tend to think more of Jesus' suffering, the cross, the resurrection and his ascension into heaven, and and as he sits in heaven awaiting to return, some people call that his his session as he's ruling over the universe waiting to return. And one thing that we're going to notice as we go through these last couple chapters is Matthew wants us to see that Jesus Christ, God become a man, as we've been talking about over and over again, is fully in control of the situation. So if you're thinking, oh, this is really a shame, man, what they did to this nice guy, this is the plan of God. This is the way it was supposed to go down from the beginning, and the plan of God will not be thwarted. Jesus dying on the cross is not the end, but rather it is a new beginning 
a new, if you will, coming of the kingdom, and the kingdom of God is now moving in full motion. So let's begin verse 1 and see Jesus in control. Matthew chapter 26, verse 1 and 2. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. What sayings? Well, it could be the stuff from chapter 24 and chapter 25. Remember that private teaching that he had going on with the apostles? Or it could be all of Jesus' teachings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover. Some of your versions say the Passover is two days away. Uh, Leads us to believe that it's probably Tuesday night and the Passover feast will start on Thursday. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So Son of Man, Jesus' favorite name for himself, the name that the Old Testament, he got from the Old Testament prophet Daniel, and he says he's going to be crucified. Something he has been telling the apostles over and over and over again, and it's just not registering. You ever have that? You tell somebody something over and over and over again. Why are all the wives looking at their husbands? You tell somebody, my, why is my wife pointing from the back? That's you, that's you. All right. You tell somebody over and over and over again, it is just not registering. And so uh, while there is teaching after uh, this section here uh, at the Last Supper, it's primarily in the Gospel of John, Matthew does not really record it. What Matthew records to us is his focus on the religious leader's plot to kill Jesus. John focuses more on the teaching at the Last Supper, and there's four Gospels, and he focuses on the teaching at the Last Supper and the Romans' involvement in the crucifixion of Jesus. But uh, Matthew, also like Mark does, focuses a lot on the religious leaders. So again, most Bible scholars think we're probably at the end of the day on Tuesday. The feast will begin on the Passover feast will begin on Thursday p.m. The the city is absolutely uh, filled with people for the feast, and as they are sub- celebrating their deliverance from Egypt uh, through the prophet Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible. So what was what was Passover? Well, let's just quite put it very simply. If you know the story of Moses. Uh, God said, let my people go. He sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Pharaoh didn't want any part of it. So God sent a series of plagues. And, and the Passover really celebrates the last plague. If you're taking notes, you might want to just read for your homework, Exodus 12. And what would happen would be, uh, in this last plague, was a lamb would be sacrificed. They would take the blood of the lamb and they would put it over the doorpost of their house. We sometimes equate that with the blood of Jesus being over the the doorpost of our heart. And then the angel of the Lord or the destroyer uh, passed over the houses. And if there was blood over, and there would be an element of faith to it, if there was blood over the door, then the firstborn male would be saved, would not die. But if there was no blood over the door then the firstborn male would die. Yet how different is Jesus' Passover? Those who, who put their trust in Jesus will be saved because God does not pass over his firstborn son. So here in this Passover, God's own firstborn son will not be spared. And so each year, uh, at Passover, the Jews would, would sacrifice the Passover lamb. But this particular week, as the Apostle Paul would later on write, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he calls Jesus our Passover lamb. He will be sacrificed so all who put their trust in Jesus can be saved from the slavery of sin, just like the people were saved from the slavery in Egypt, Egypt, a type of sin in the Bible. Now, John the Baptist, a guy we encountered a long time ago, he's since been uh, beheaded uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, who wrote 700 years earlier, described him as a voice crying in the wilderness, and he knew that the cross was coming, or he knew what Jesus was going to do beforehand, and he said this, John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what we notice about Jesus in this week is Jesus does not try to escape. 
He doesn't try to escape. Other times, they tried to take him. They tried to take him to make him the, be the leader. Other times, they wanted to try to arrest him, but he, he went away. But this time, he doesn't try to escape. And there's a sense of irony that, that Matthew is going to continually point out to us as we go through these last couple of chapters. And one is this. Remember in chapter 24 and 25, we were told that Jesus Christ was the creator judge of the universe. And here we're going to see that the creator judge is going to be cruelly judged by his own creation. Jesus has, as we said, predicted the cross many times already. And not only is Jesus willing to go to the cross, but Jesus is now determined to go to the cross. Jesus knows it is the will of his Father. He is determined to do the will of his Father. He is determined to obey his heavenly Father. And up until this point, we've seen that many people wanted to kill Jesus, particularly the religious leaders. Now, that's one of those iron, you know, things of irony. The religious leaders want to kill God. Sometimes we look, how does that make sense? It doesn't make sense, although they're really not really followers of God. And again, the cross is not some, it's not some unfortunate thing. It's not like, oh, this poor guy, nice guy, Jesus, just wanted to help people, died on the cross, really, really sad. Not at all. It was the will and the plan of God. Uh, Jesus said this, John 10, 17 and 18. He says, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. So nobody's going to take him from him. He's going to be like, no, no, no. When I say it's time, that's when it is going to be time. And that gives us a clue to Jesus' control of the situation and Jesus' perfect timing of the situation. He says, I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. In other words, I have the power to let them kill me and then I have the power to raise myself from the dead. The command I have received, this command I have received from my father. So as we get into this section, we've, we've picked off 16 verses to go through today. We're going to see something that Matthew does here. And if you were with us years ago when we did the Gospel of Mark, it's a technique of writing that Mark used quite a bit. And, and so I guess, I guess taking a page out of his book, Matthew does it as well here. And it's a, it's a technique we call sandwiching. Sandwiching. So, so what is a sandwich? Let me make a few of you hungry. I can hear your stomachs growling already. A sandwich is basically, we're not talking about triple-decker, so don't, don't write me any emails about that kind of stuff, okay? But a sandwich is basically two pieces of bread with the meat in the middle. Two pieces of bread, or unless it's a veggie sandwich for some of you people, I get it. But let's, let's just talk about it as two pieces of bread with the meat in, in the middle. So that's what sandwiching is. And so in this case, he's going to tell us three different, there's going to be three different scenarios And when we learned in Mark's gospel that the meat, the sandwich in between, is the most important thing. And that's really easy to figure out here because here in this passage, the bread is moldy. The bread is rotten. So, so, but the meat is beautiful. So what I want to do, I'm going to do something I rarely do. I'm not going to teach the Bible verses in order. Some of you are like, are you allowed to do that? Well, I am, okay? <laughs> so so what, what we're going to see here is we're going to get the moldy bread out of the way, and then we're going to enjoy the beautiful part, the middle of the sandwich. Verse 3, moldy bread. Then the chief priests. Now, these are mainly the wealthy Sadducees. We've been dealing a lot with the Pharisees, but these are the Sadducees. Uh, They are less of them, but they are the most influential, and they are very, very wealthy. They basically control everything. Then the chief priests, the scribes, those are the experts in the Bible, and the elders of the people. Those would be what we call the lay leaders. They're not part of the formal clergy, but they're leaders uh, among the people. Well, let's just say most of the religious leaders are getting together. They assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. Now, when, usually when I do this stuff with youth group kids, we come across certain names, Caiaphas, Annas, Judas, and every time we raise their name, we go, boo. So I don't care if you say boo whenever I say that, or if you want to be mature, you can just say boo in your heart. Uh, so here we have Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas was the high priest. He was the... 
the seaman. <laughs> okay, so that dude, uh, Caiaphas, was the high priest for 18 years. Very, very rare during that time. Typically in the Old Testament, you would, before Jesus' time, you would be high priest, and then when you died, your son would take over as the high priest. But when the Romans came in and overtook the uh, occupied Israel, if they didn't like the high priest, they just fired him. They're like, this guy's too much trouble. They hated the Romans. He's, he's, you know, he's an agitator. He wants the people to tell us Romans to get out of here. So they would fire him, and they would replace him with someone else. And so he was the high priest for 18 years. That's a long, long time. And we know that he was very, very crooked. And he was the son-in-law, not the son, of the previous high priest, Annas, who was super, super wicked. And the Romans had it with him, and so they kicked him out. And he wasn't replaced by death, but they kicked him out. But by putting his son-in-law in there, he was still able to retain his influence there. And we're told in verse 4 that, so here they are at the palace of the high priest, in verse 4, and plotted, some of your versions say, made plans, others say schemed, to take Jesus by trickery. Some of your versions translate that treacherously, craftily, secretly. My favorite is the version that says take some, taking them by stealth. They're, gonna, they're, going to, they're plotting by stealth okay, to, to take him and to kill him, to kill him. So here we have the religious guys are plotting to kill God. But they said, not during the feast lest there should be an uproar, some of your versions say riot, among the people. So remember I said Jesus is in control of the situation. What we see here is a comparison, there's going to be lots of comparisons in this text today, is, is that the religious leaders, they're thinking they're going to control the situation. And Jesus wants to, he says, he just told the apostles, listen, I'm going to be killed during the Passover. And they're saying, oh, no, 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 no. We're not going to do it during the Passover. There's too many people in town. We're going to do it when the people are not looking. As soon as they turn their back, as soon as they start going home, we're all over this guy and we're going to get rid of him. So here we have the most powerful men in Israel, the clerics and the lay leaders, the governing body known as the Sanhedrin. Some people pronounce it Sanhedrin. I pronounce it Sanhedrin. doesn't really matter. And, and really, all they know how to do is this. All they know how to do is certain types of religious stuff to make themselves look holy and religious, and they know how to make a lot of money. We talked about that in the cash you know, scheme they had going with the animals at the temple when Jesus first went into the temple and he was overturning the tables. And so here they are planning the death of Jesus. So interesting, they meet at the palace of the high priest. What is the high priest supposed to be? He's supposed to be the leader of the people of God. Yet this guy is completely crooked. He doesn't care if people don't know God. He doesn't care if people are growing deeper in their faith. Why doesn't he care? Because he doesn't know God. Because God walked into the temple started talking to him, and he said, we got to kill him. He doesn't, he doesn't know God. He doesn't care about God at all. He just cares about himself. And so the religious leaders, they're well-educated. They're smart enough to know, hey, we've got to be very, very careful here. This is, a, this is a ticking time bomb we have on our hands. Just a few days earlier, actually the week before, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, only a couple of miles away, and there's a buzz about this guy. They're thinking, he's the Messiah He's going to come into town. That's why they were all cheering on Palm Sunday. They're thinking he's going to get rid of the Romans. He's going to take this place over. They, the people love Jesus. He's dealing with the religious leaders in the temple, and he's sending them home with their tail between their legs. They love this guy. But then there's a whole other crowd. You know, when Jesus turned over the tables in the temple and ruined the business for those guys, what did you think those guys thought of him? They're like, Jesus is bad for the economy, man. Like the Jesus recession came to the temple. People were not, people were not into it anymore. And so they, they want to get rid of him. The other people, the religious leaders, they can't stand him. The common people who they really look down upon, they love Jesus. The Romans just want peace. That was pretty much the Roman Empire thing. They're like, listen, man, 
do your religious thing, just don't cause any trouble. Once we have to start sending soldiers to keep you in, in line, that, then, then that's it. Caesar's going to have it with you. And they already knew that they were a lot more than a pebble in Caesar's shoe. That the, that the, the Jewish people really, really uh, annoyed Caesar. And so here's what they're thinking. They think they're so clever. They're like, why chance it at the Passover feast? Let's wait until it's over. So here we have all this rationalizing and all this scheming that's going on in their minds. And I don't know about you, and, and of course, you, we've all got to look in the mirror when we think about such things. But the ability of the human heart to rationalize and to deceive itself is absolutely amazing. I mean, here they are thinking they're doing the right thing. Here they are thinking that they're actually going to be helping the situation, that they're going to keep good order, and they're going to keep uh, the nation in good graces with Caesar in the Roman Empire. Oh, and by the way, they're going to keep the cash coming in. They're going to keep ripping people off at the, at the temple. Now, it's interesting, you don't have to boom, but Caiaphas, you can if you want, uh, Caiaphas is, is best known for what he said at a meeting with other religious leaders after, this was the week before, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and the religious leaders began to fear that the people were going to start following after Jesus. And then what would happen? If there was a riot, if there was an insurrection, if there was an overthrow of the, of the system there in Jerusalem, the Romans would come in and would fire all those guys. So they're all meeting together, discussing this, and John eleven forty nine through 50, and, and one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Do you, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. So what is he saying? Listen, let's just knock this crazy Galilean carpenter off. Let's get rid of him. They're like hitmen, these guys, aren't they? They're like, let's just knock him off. Why in the world should Caesar come in and make us a parking lot? Well, let's let one guy die for everybody. Now, isn't God funny? Isn't God funny? You know what? If he can't get his people to go out and tell people his plan, he'll get his enemies to go out and tell people his plan. <laughs> so here we have an enemy of God stating God's plan. He is what we would call unconsciously prophetic. And, and while they plan for Jesus to die after the Passover, Jesus is in control. Jesus says, nope, I'm going to die during the Passover. This is a very important point for all of us to remember. God is in control, and Jesus follows his will even when things look bad. Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're really glad that you're here. Super, super glad that you're here. I hope you keep coming back to learn more and more because I can almost guarantee you that you don't know what you think you know about Jesus. I went to religious school for 12 years, knew nothing about him. I mean, Zippo, until I just started going through the scriptures and, and was amazed at some of the things that I learned about Jesus, still continue to be amazed uh, to this day. And if you want to be a follower of Jesus, and most of the people in this room do, uh, we want the same thing to be said of our lives, that, that we know that God is in control, we put that in our minds, we put that in our hearts, and we determine ourselves to follow him even when things are going really poorly. And a lot of times we often say around here that we're too guilty of listening to ourselves instead of preaching to ourselves. And when things seem to be spinning out of control, we want to be saying to ourselves, well, I know God is in control, and I know that he wants me to follow him even when things look bad, so that's what I'm going to do. Now, this is a point you have to pay very, very careful attention to. Jesus suffered, and therefore he is able to understand your suffering. And in, G in you understanding that Jesus understands your suffering, that is one of the ways you experience his love. Let me say that again. 
I don't want to go too fast, because some of you are, look like you either were out too late last night, or you're confused. Jesus suffered, and therefore is able to understand your suffering, and when you understand that Jesus understands your suffering, that is one of the ways that you experience his love. And this understanding that God is in control, always important to remember that God is in control of a world where much that happens, he hates, yet his plan will all come together. Proof. Jesus was crucified on a cross and rose from the dead. There's the proof that even what looks bad at the moment, God is going to work it together. And so the experience of God's control and his understanding of our pain is key to our discipleship, key to our being a learner and follower of Jesus, and our knowing Jesus more intimately and personally. And again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I know that sounds really weird to you. I get it. I get it. It's kind of like, you know, if somebody just came from some other part of the world and you were like, Oh, man, it's like 90 degrees today. Let, let's go for some ice cream. They're like, what's ice cream? Like, how do you explain it? It's cold? Like, you know, I'm from the North Pole. It's always cold, man. What are you talking about, right? So, so, so some things are just difficult to explain until you come to the point of understanding. And so there we go. They're plotting against Jesus. That is, we'll call that the bottom part of the moldy bread. Let's eat the other piece of moldy bread on the sandwich. And uh, the high priest and religious leaders are out for themselves, but they are not the only ones. Let's jump down to verse 14. I know I'm skipping verses. Some of you are panicking right now. Then one of the 12, whenever you see that expression in the Bible, one of the 12, that means one of the 12 apostles called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Now, we're going to see in a minute they're going to give him some money, but it could be he realizes that Jesus, it's funny thing is, he seems to be the only apostle that understands what Jesus is talking about, that he's going to die. The rest of them are like, what is he talking about? Right? And, and, but he's like, I don't like this plan. I want you to take the place over, Jesus. I don't want you to die. And so I don't know whether it's money, but maybe it's a position. And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. So right after that, he's thinking, I'm looking for an opportunity to betray uh, Jesus. This is so evil, it's amazing. This is so loveless, it's almost incomprehensible. Judas was an apostle. The dude traveled with Jesus for over three years. He was one of Jesus' closest followers. He was one of the 12. This is why when you read through the Gospel of John and it has the, the events that's going on at the Last Supper, just remember the way Jesus is talking to them, that he's sitting there. He is sitting there. It's like sometimes it's like Jesus is saying, dude, you don't have to do this. I'll wash your feet, man. I'm go- Listen, my, my father, he will figure out a way to get me on that cross. You do not have to do this, man. He knows that this is what Judas is going to do. He tells him, hey, you got to go now? Go. Go do it. I know the plan. And so he's, he's, uh, this is unbelievable. And, and to add insult to injury, we have no indication that they were looking for Judas. It wasn't like, so let's find out who the weakest link of the 12 is. No, by all accounts, it appears that, that he went to them. We're not told why. There's lots of theories. We do know that he was a crook. John tells us that he was the treasurer. He kept the money box and he stole from it. it was very, I always find that to be so interesting. Like, you know, who... who you know, Jesus is like, Lord, who do you, Father, who do you want to be the treasurer? Pick Judas. He's a crook. I mean, like, it's like, <laughs> if you're a crook, it's okay. We love you, man. But you are not counting the money at this church. <laughs> that is just not happening. They don't let the pastors count the money. We don't let the crooks count the money, okay? But, but it's amazing that he's, he's the guy in charge of the money. Maybe he was, maybe he was disappointed in Jesus' plan. 
Like, I don't like this plan where you die. I want the plan where you kick the Romans out. Certainly, certainly greed is involved here. He's going to take money for it. He was stealing already. Maybe he was out of money, right? But we all know that, that love for money and possessions and or disappointment with God has turned a lot of people away from God. A lot. That's a really dangerous combination. When, you're, when, you're, when you just love money more than God, you got to make that extra dime, that extra few bucks here and there, or, 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 or you're just so disappointed with God that you just, you just give up on him. You just give up on him. Let me tell you something. If that's you, God has not given up on you. No way. No way. A thousand years earlier, King David wrote these words. Who He knew a lot about betrayal. He wrote these words, Psalm 41.9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Another version says, says, someone I trusted has turned against me. Have you been really betrayed by someone? I mean, really betrayed. Jesus totally gets it. He totally knows it. His friend Judas betrays him. He betrays him. Then the rest of the apostles, they take off. They're nowhere to be found when Jesus has been crucified and buried in that tomb. Jesus had great plans for Judas. Friend, Jesus has great plans for you. Great plans. But Judas didn't want them. Judas wanted what Judas wanted and blew Jesus off. And again, note the irony of the wording here. He sought opportunity. No way, man. No way, man. He turned away the greatest opportunity. The greatest opportunity. Man, the whole world, he picks 12 guys. 12, that's it. And you're one of them. And you want your own way. Oh, Jesus, I don't like your timetable. No, I don't like your plan. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Have some of you done that before? How does that go for you? Some of you doing that now? How's that going for you? I say that to a lot of people. How really, how's that going for you? We all know it doesn't go well for us, does it? We can't, if we're children of God, we can't, we can't do that. And so he had great opportunity for Jesus. He blew the biggest, I mean, for Judas, he blew the biggest opportunity of all time. Yet we have to really think about this, and this is so soul-searching. Please don't think that I'm just giving it to you, right? I had to deal with this all week long. Remember in chapter 24 and chapter 25, we saw that in any assembly of people who would call themselves to be Christians, some more churches than others, but, but any assembly of people that call themselves church, uh, Christians, there are some people who are believers and there are some people who are not. And here we see this very soul-searching thing that Judas traveled with Jesus. Judas probably did miracles. Judas was with him. He sat at the Passover feast with him. Yet Judas is a phony. Judas is an unbeliever. I don't know about you, but that, that scares me. That scares me that, that, that what a warning that we can know all about Jesus and still turn away from him. That we could, we could know all so many things about Jesus. We have a lot of Bible verses memorized, but we could still do our own thing and ignore Jesus. Judas sold Jesus out. He gave Jesus up for a small sum of money, which really makes us all consider, what would you sell out on Jesus for? I mean, what, 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 what's worth it to you to have to lose Jesus? It's amazing. The religious guys are like, we want our religion. We don't want Jesus. What, what is it? What is it that you and I would, would actually trade for Jesus? What would we compromise our faith for? Perhaps the deeper question is this. What is Jesus worth to us? 
What is Jesus worth to you? What is Jesus worth to me? And I would tell you this. Don't answer that question too quickly. In fact, if, you, if you're taking notes right now, I would write somewhere on that paper and I would put, what is Jesus worth to me? I'd put a box around it and a star and I would take it home. I wouldn't even answer that question in this service. I would say, Lord, this week, I'm going to get some time alone with you and I really want to hack that question out with you. I really want to, I want to know and I want you somehow to tell me Maybe in my own actions, in what I do, and have you go to me, is that what I'm worth to you? Or am I worth that little to you? Jesus is worth nothing to the religious leaders. Zippo, nada. They want what they want. That's more important. Jesus is worth very little to Judas, just a little bit of money. How sad. Yet Jesus is willing to pay the high cost of love by dying on the cross, giving to you, giving to me, the most valuable thing he could ever give, which is what? Himself. Himself. You see that all throughout the scripture, the most valuable thing that God gives to us is himself. It's one thing I love about wedding ceremonies when they say, I, I give myself to you and I, and, I, and I give myself to you. Just that, that whole symbolism there. And so Jesus gives, he loves so much, he gives of himself. Judas, pff, no value. A few bucks, 30 pieces of silver. So let's get to the beautiful part, the meat of the sandwich. Now, if you're new to the Bible or you're not that familiar with certain aspects of the Bible, you have to be really careful because some people will come along and they'll tell you, oh, the Bible's full of inconsistencies. And if they know a little bit, there are some that are, you see in certain parts here that they're going to point to. One of them is, they will say, the next story that comes up, John puts it in his gospel on Saturday night. But here, Matthew puts us already in the Passover week that Jesus is already inside of Jerusalem. So chronologically, they're off. No, chronologically, they're different. Why is that? Well, people back during that time were not as obsessed with time as we are. You know anybody who's obsessed with time? I feel like I'm into wrist worship. I still wear a watch. I don't know why. But I'm always looking at my wrist and not my right one. Okay? And so, and so they're not obsessed with time. And a lot of times what the Bible writers do is they do not write chronologically, but they write thematically. So they take a theme and they put it into a place where they know it's going to fit. And here it fits in the sandwich in between these two evil aspects, the evil religious leaders and evil Judas Iscariot. So verse 6 says this, and when Jesus was in Bethany, he doesn't say, and next Jesus went to Bethany. He just tells us a story. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Now, lepers were outcasts. We don't know much who Simon the leper is. Most Bible scholars think that he was cured, probably cured by Jesus. Um, some people think that you just, you know, maybe it was his house and he didn't live there anymore or something like that. I just want to draw your attention to one thing. You notice how when people have stuff wrong with them, the name often sticks. So maybe you're here today and you identify yourself as a drug addict. Or you identify yourself as an alcoholic. Or you identify yourself as a, as a porn addict. Or whatever your thing is, you identify as that. That is not the identity that Jesus wants you to have. Jesus wants you to identify as one of his own. Jesus wants your identity to be in him. That's the name that he wants to stick to you. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. He tells us here, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask full of very costly, fragrant oil. Uh, Some versions say perfume. In John chapter uh, 11, Jesus, uh, in the story when it actually happens, uh, Judas is quick to point out it's a year's salary. That's how much it costs. Why? He knows how much everything's worth because he's a crook. And she poured it out on his head, as he sat at the table. 
So let's realize just something very obvious that's here. There's a party. Jesus goes to the party. Jesus comes to people. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, thank God for that. You are because Jesus came to you. And he calls you to come to him. So here's Jesus at this party. He comes to the party and this woman comes to him. As we're going to see, she seems to know what's going on. Now, it's very interesting. Judas, the betrayer, he seems to know what's going on. And this woman who's not named, we'll talk about her in a second. She seems to know what's going on. Now, if this story sounds familiar to you, uh, John and Mark in their Gospels have the same story. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 7 has a different and much more emotional anointing. There, a sinful woman washes Jesus' feet with her tears and kisses his feet. Now, of course, the religious leaders are like, I wonder if they know that this, Jesus knows that this woman is a sinner. I mean, it's like, how often do people wash their, your feet with their tears? I mean, it's like, you know, what do you, like, this is not a common thing. Jesus, Jesus knows. John tells us that this woman's name was Mary of Bethany. Now, if you know anything about the story, uh, they had a bro- Mary and Martha had a sister, had a brother named Lazarus. Jesus was good friends with them. They went to their, Jesus goes to their house initially. One is sitting at his feet. The other one is busy about work. You say, I always get Mary and Martha mixed up. It's very easy. Just think Martha was busy like Martha Stewart. That's how you remember it, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and, so, and so Mary's the one sitting at his feet. Martha's all busy. And here we have the same thing again. Mary of Bethany is the one who anoints him. Uh, brother of La- their brother is Lazarus. Jesus rose them from the dead. Uh, she's grateful for that. She, they also know, both of the sisters know the promise that Jesus made to them, that he would, rise, he would raise the Lazarus from the dead. It was very interesting. Jesus comes there. He knows Lazarus is going to die. He delays his trip there. They get there, and he, Jesus gets there. The sisters are like, you know, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. We're always like, people would never talk to Jesus like that. Oh, wait a few minutes. We're going to see how people talk to Jesus. And so how do we talk to him sometimes? So anyway, they're, they're like, uh, you know, Jesus is like, well, they'll, you know, he will, he will rise again. And they're like, they have the religious answer. Oh, yes, Jesus, we know. He'll, he'll rise in the resurrection. And this is what Jesus says to her sister, Martha. Jesus said to her, this is uh, John eleven twenty five and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, remember that word belief is more similar to our word, our thinking of trust. Though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Then we just pause there for a second. Then I think Jesus looks her right in the eye, looks you and I right in the eye, and asks a very pointed and personal question. He says to her, do you believe this? What is he saying to her? Are you going to trust me with this thing? Are you going to trust me with this whole death thing? Do you believe that if you put your trust in me, just like I I can raise your brother from the dead, I can raise myself from the dead, do you believe that I can do the same for you? Let me ask you a question. How would you answer that question to Jesus? I don't mean with your head. I don't mean with your, you know, churchy religious answer. How will you and I really answer that? Do we really believe that? And so now we go into these times here where we see Matthew is giving us Various comparisons in these stories. We move from the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the house of Simon, the leper. In other words, we move from the religious elite to the house of a complete outcast. We move move from hubris or extreme pride to humility. And who comes up to Jesus but an unnamed woman? Now, women had very little uh, value, certainly, to the religious leaders. And before you throw Matthew in that category, way, way, way back 
In Matthew chapter 1, we covered the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus, and there was a number of women mentioned, not all of them really what we would call good, holy, upstanding young girls, and it was actually rare to put a woman in your genealogy. But Matthew here, here he doesn't name the, the woman why. I think the idea is he wants us to know between Simon the leper and this woman, anybody can come to Jesus. Whether you're an outcast or you feel unnamed or unnoticed or nobody knows what's going on in your life, Jesus is saying, you can come to me. And her love and worship is sandwiched in between the religious leader's hatred and Judas' betrayal. I mean, the hypocrisy of religion is absolutely staggering to me. It's absolutely staggering to me. Some of the stories that I hear over the years of what people have done in the name of God, I cannot believe it. I cannot, I, I, I'm, I'm at a loss for words. Some of you know the story of my own brother. His single mother, his mom was a single mom impregnated in Ireland, sent off to some place where they did the laundry called the Magdalene Laundries for, the, for, the, for all the clergy in Ireland. And then at one years old, taken from his mother and shipped off to the United States and given to our family. And we were told, oh, she wanted to put him up for adoption. The hell she did. How can people do that? How can people do that in the name of God? In the name of religion? Are you kidding me? The religious hypocrisy is unbelievable. Do you know what these guys are doing right now? They are at home purifying themselves for the Passover while they are plotting the death of Jesus. This is how deadly religion is. People tell me, you know, religion is a very deadly thing. I go, you got that right, man. You got that right. They're like, well, you're very religious. I go, I'm certainly not. Don't insult me. Don't insult me. Caiaphas, the evil high priest, is a man of great impurity, while Jesus, the great high priest, takes his perfect purity to the impure house of Simon the leper, an outcast from society. And then an unnamed woman comes to Jesus. And again, I want you to realize today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, today Jesus has come to you. And today Jesus has come to you and says, okay, now I want you to come to me. So as a custom was at a banquet, if you had a, a, a guest of honor, you would, you would anoint them with oil. Or also there was an oil that families had for when they saved up their money, they knew that somebody was going to die. But here there's this very costly ointment, not some normal oil. This is, this is like the oil used to anoint a king or the oil used to anoint royalty at their funeral. And just imagine how the whole house smelled. And she cracks it open, and the whole house would be filled with this odor. And you know how odors are powerful, aren't they? Just yesterday, I was out at the park with my grandson, and I walked by this guy, and I turn and look at him, and he's like, yo, what are you looking at? <laughs> he was smoking a pipe. And I said, no smoking in public. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> my grandpa smoked a pipe. As soon as I smelled it, I thought of my grandfather. I was an altar boy for a lot of years. Uh, why? Well, because my school was attached uh, to, the, to the church, and I knew the head of the funeral home. So whenever there was funerals, they would take me out of first period, 
and they would have me serve at the mass, and you would get tips. So how about that? No class, and you make money. (laughs) I'm like, what a good deal. But to this day, whenever I smell incense, I think of death. I walk into a place. So if I come to your house and you burn incense, some people go, oh, no, he's thinking death. Don't burn incense. He's coming over. <laughs> but really, that, that's what I think of. The whole house would have just smelled like death to them. I can just imagine, like, Mary, it's a party. Would you stop? You're like, no, he's going to die on the cross. Oh, he's not. He's just, a, it's hyperbole. He doesn't mean, no, no, he's serious. He keeps telling us over and over again. He keeps telling us over and over again. See, to the religious leaders, Jesus is worth more dead than alive. To Judas, he's worth 30 pieces of silver. To this woman, he's worth all she has. Without hesitation, she pours out her soul in worship. She seems totally unconcerned with the high cost of such love. It doesn't matter to her. Verse 8, but, there's a contrast, When the disciples saw it, now, for the most part, they were mostly working class kind of guys. Some of them may be a little bit poor. They were indignant, saying, whenever whenever they get this way, I always turn, like, English on them. I don't know, like, why this waste? You know, like like that, 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 that pious voice, like, oh, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much. Another version says, for a high price given to the poor. Oh, aren't we spiritual? Aren't we so spiritual? Now, we, we, we know that actually they're from Galilee. And they talk probably more like people when we would equate in the country, in this country, people from the bayou. You know, down there when they have those shows on TV, they have to put subtitles under when they're talking. Because we don't understand them. <laughs> That's why my grandfather talked. He was from Ireland, and, and, he, and he talked like he was always drunk and had and got in a fight and had marbles in his mouth. And I'd be like, Dad, what's he talking about? <laughs> so it says, verse 10, but when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them. Now, you've got to be thinking that. They're like, how does y'all know what we're thinking all the time? Right? So he always figures out what they're saying. Listen what he, Jesus says to them. Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. If you have your own Bible, circle for me. That's what it's all about. Side note, as we've seen, Matthew considers good works to be a good thing, but not something that brings salvation. Another version says, she has done a beautiful thing for me. Verse 11, for you have the poor with you always. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 15, 11 there from Moses, basically saying, you're always going to have them to help. But me, you do not have always. Here's another one. People who know a little bit of Bible go, oh, Bible inconsistency. Matthew's gospel right at the end. Chapter 26, Jesus says, you're not going to have with me always. Chapter 28, he says, I'll be with you all the time. There you go. He's wrong. Eh, No good. Okay, simple answer. Simple answer. Here he's saying, you're not going to have with me, you with me, me with you all of the time. Physically, and in chapter 28, he says, I will always be with you spiritually. So there you go. There's your answer to that one. Now, here's the interesting thing. The disciples are right. They could have sold the perfume and given the money to the poor, Judas. Um, They could have sold the money and given it to the poor, but they're right. But they're also wrong. Well, how are they wrong? They say, why this waste? It's not a waste. Why? Because it is for Jesus. That's why heaven sees it as a beautiful thing. Why is it a beautiful thing? Jesus said, because you did it for me. And that is the radical commitment of following Jesus. That Jesus is to be first. That is the radical commitment of a church. That Jesus is to be first. Extravagant love for Jesus does not mean that we don't serve others. In fact, when we serve other people, it's an expression of our love for Jesus Christ. 
This, this passage, terrible what some people have done with this passage. Some people have used it as an excuse for never helping the poor. Oh, we're going to have more. They're always going to be with us. And other people, you know, the dudes who are pastors with the planes and the, and the 19 houses and the 14 collections at every, uh, you know, service and stuff like that. They use it as an excuse for their extravagance. Oh, Jesus was treated extravagantly. God wants us to be extravagant. Talk about missing the point. In John's gospel, we're told that Judas was the most vocal about the, about the waste. Why? Because Jesus wasn't first. Jesus wasn't first. Judas is complaining. Why? Because Jesus isn't first. Just a side note, if everything is always wrong, you're always complaining, nothing's ever good, with Jesus' followers in Jesus' church, perhaps, perhaps Jesus isn't first. It's interesting how our our time and our money reveals our true devotion to Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. And true worship responds to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But again, how odd. It really only seems like Mary and Judas really heard Jesus. It's only, it seems like only they really believed when he said the cross was coming, that the cross was coming. And note their complete opposite reactions. One is extreme betrayal, and the other is extreme devotion. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? You know, Jesus is always breaking it out into two categories. And the same is true today. Verse 10, Jesus knows what people really think about him. We can say all we want. We can have all the religious jargon down all we want. Jesus knows what we really think about him. But I want you to notice something else about that Jesus does here. When the apostles, the mighty men of God, get on this woman's case, Jesus rushes to defend her. Jesus is like, you know what? You don't know what you're talking about. But we're the apostles. I don't care. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. And not only does he defend her, but he praises her. So verse 12, here comes the surprise. For in pouring out this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. It's like, do I have to spell it out for you? And then verse 13 could be just about the highest praise we see in all of the Gospels. Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, is preached to the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Guess what's coming true right now? That prophecy right now. Right now, in this place. What she's done as the gospel of the kingdom goes forward, is being, is being remembered. Now, verse 12 would strike people as odd. You would, basically, it would go like this. You would die. Your family would anoint you with, with oil uh, and perfume. You'd be buried. But for a crucified criminal, the anointing was often skipped. So she is really giving us a picture of what is going to happen on the cross that Jesus is going to be crucified as a criminal. We'll go through that as we go further along. Roman, the, the religious leaders said you make yourself out to be God. The Romans said that you claim to be a king. There's no king but Caesar. Does she know all of the particulars? I don't know for sure, but I do know this, that every time we see Mary, she's sitting at Jesus' feet, and she's listening to his voice, we do know that she was thankful to Jesus and for what Jesus has done for her. And we are to love Jesus the same way with a costly love. And friends, I know that a lot of you live with that low-level religious guilt. You have trouble kicking it. And I want to help you by explaining this to you very quickly. Nothing you do for Jesus is wasted. They said, oh, what a waste. Jesus goes, nothing 
anybody does for me is wasted. And nothing you do for Jesus will be forgotten. Because what you do for Jesus proclaims the gospel and your love for Jesus. You came in this parking lot today. You saw dudes parking you to the glory of God, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. We don't pay them. They do it for God. And you're going to see them out there when it's minus five degrees. And they're going to look just as happy. Well, almost as happy. (laughs) Proclaiming the gospel and their love for God. But more importantly than our high costs of love is Jesus' high cost. She poured out perfume on the cross. Jesus poured out his blood. She had a passion for Jesus, and we should, as followers of Jesus and the church, have a passion for Jesus. But his passion is most important. And I wonder somehow if Jesus isn't teaching us here through what she says, she anointed him for his burial, and that when this gospel is preached, this will be remembered. Is it possible that Jesus is sort of behind the scenes saying to us that if we talk to people about God and we have not mentioned the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we have not preached the gospel? That we've just told them about religion. The cross was costly love, extravagant love, and it shows you the value that you have to Jesus and that the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with him and his house is yours if you'll only put your trust in him. Well, let's stand and pray.